0: Thank you, Sean. It's good to see you again this morning and uh, good to be together. We gather, yes, to see each other and enjoy the fellowship that we have with one another, but we especially gather to the Lord Jesus, don't we? We gather around Him, and uh, one of the primary ways that we do that is by gathering around the Word, uh, the Word of God. And so, I appreciate the opportunity to spend this time with you and share God's word with you. And a few of you were not here last week, so it's good to make your acquaintance. And I'm enjoying getting to know each of you here at Northridge. And I don't know if there's anybody here who actually I have met a couple this morning who aren't from uh, right around here and don't don't normally attend this church. So if you are someone's friend or family member this morning, it's really good to have you here And uh, we certainly welcome you uh, into this time that we have together as well. And as I shared with you last week, I'm spending a few weeks with you this month and then also in the month of March. And we are looking together at the little New Testament letter, or sometimes we call it a book, called Titus, the book of Titus. And I introduced to you the theme of this book last week as Living or learning and living, and also a little bit of a kind of a catchphrase, a little tagline that goes with that. And I illustrated that with the gap that is between a train car and the platform in London and the voice that announces what? What does that voice say? Do you remember? Can you tell me out loud? Mind the gap. Exactly. Mind the gap. And the idea is using that as an analogy an illustration of the gap that we sometimes experience between what we know and how we live and we're especially thinking of that in terms of what we know from god's word what we know as the truth from the bible that guides us and we can learn and we can understand and we can memorize and we can be able to recite various aspects of what the bible contains and what it says and even what it means. But sometimes there's a gap, isn't there, between what we know and how we live. And Paul wrote this letter to uh, a, uh, an individual who was assisting him by guiding and developing a church on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea in the first century. And I, I think from, from reading and studying Paul's letter, he was emphasizing that idea of minding the gap and of making sure that we not only learn, and for those people in that time, that they would not only learn God's truth, but also live by it, that it would impact their lives. And so we are, we are looking together at this book in connection with that theme. Well, what is it that we are to learn? Last week, we looked at the first few verses, and we see there in verse 1 that uh, we, we learn the truth, acknowledgement of the truth. We come to know the truth And at that time, the truth, the absolute certainties that guide our lives, came from God through individuals that he uh, gave the opportunity, that he enabled to deliver those messages. They were called apostles, and of course one of them was Paul. Paul delivered truth to this man, Titus, and then Titus was delivering this truth to leaders in their group, in their gathering, in their church, we would call it, who would then teach the people. Well, how is the word delivered to us today? It comes to us through the written scriptures that we have called the Bible. But God has also set up in the church today leaders who guide the church organizationally but also who teach the word, who teach the scriptures in a way that is intended not just to educate us, but to transform us so we can live out what we learn from God's word. And so our focus today is on delivering these life-changing truths or collectively truth, delivering life-changing truth. And so look with me, uh, actually what I'll do is start in verse 1 and then uh, read the first few verses and then continue starting with verse 5 down through verse 9 that we will look at more closely this morning. So look with me at Titus chapter 1 starting in verse 1, and I'll read it for us. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me, according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I, Paul says, left you, Titus, in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop or an overseer must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now look back uh, at verse 5, and you can see Paul's instruction to Titus was that he would set in order the things that are lacking. And that could have included a number of things, but specifically, Paul identifies it as finding and enlisting people who would hold positions of leadership in that church, but also who would declare the word to that church. And they would deliver not only truth, but truth that changed those people's lives. As we get started today, what I'd like to do is think in terms of the relevance of of this for us here today because sometimes we look at something that was written thousands of years ago and we think well that was for them this is now and how does that pertain to us today and i know for many of you that's assumed you you know that it is relevant but i think it helps to think of how and the practical ways that it is. So I know you have a handout, I think, there in front of you. And so there's going to be a lot in between the, uh, the little points that you have there. But those can just kind of guide you. And maybe some things that are helpful for you, you can jot down as well. So how is this, this idea of, of especially those who, the people who deliver life-changing truth relevant for us today? Well, first of all, we should all be aware of the kind of people who are influencing us. I listened to Christian radio on my way in this morning. There are many, many people who are on the air who we would say claim to speak for God. There are multiplied thousands of books and websites and blogs and podcasts and all kinds of opportunities for you and for me to listen to people who claim to teach truth, and specifically from God's Word. In the year 2020, religious books generated 667 million U.S. dollars in revenue. Fifteen percent of all podcasts are religious, Listenership to religious podcasts has grown nearly 30% a year over the past decade. And obviously I'm quoting from some resources as I, as I give you these statistics. And that is nearly triple the average growth rate of all podcast estimated downloads. So guess which area, which category of podcasts is growing exponentially the greatest? It is religious podcasts, specifically And many of these voices sincerely wish to edify believers. But there are certainly some that do not align with the whole counsel of God. And frankly, some of it is market-driven. The primary venue for teaching truth is right here. It is your local church As Paul described it in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And the most trustworthy source of teaching is leaders in your local church whom you know to be qualified in their character as well as sincere in their motives. So we need to evaluate. We need to be aware of the influences on us and and just because it claims to be religious or spiritual or even have Christian tagged onto it as a label, we have to be discerning, don't we? And make sure that those who are influencing us truly represent God's truth and are qualified by their character and their understanding to do so. The, the relevance to us today also includes the fact that, that the church is where these messengers we are looking at today grow. It's where they grow up. It's where they develop. It's where they are prepared and equipped to fulfill the role of leaders and teachers in the church. Tomorrow's messengers of the word are sitting here this morning. And that's something for us to be aware of. Just as Titus was instructed to appoint elders, presumably from among men, who were already there in those churches, in those gatherings of believers, in the same Way Today, churches should be cultivating and identifying and preparing men who will one day be qualified to fulfill this role, either in their own church or in another church. Now, for those who, who know me or I've been introduced to you, you know that I am a professor of pastoral studies. I teach in a Bible college, and this is what I do. I I teach young men who are aspiring to and preparing for pastoral ministry, those who will lead churches and preach the word. But I say this often, it's not primarily my job. It's not primarily the role of a school to identify and equip and prepare and commission individuals into ministry. That's the role of the church. Oh, I'd love to help, and we're there to partner and support in ways that, that God has enabled us to do but it's primarily up to the church to identify and cultivate and develop these leaders. And so, so, so talking about those who deliver the, the, the life-changing truths of God's word is very relevant to, to all of you here today. A third point of relevance is, is one that I think goes without saying, but it's where you are as a church. God has blessed you with leaders and with others who teach the word here. You're in a prayerful process of seeking someone who will fulfill a key role in leading and feeding this church as a pastor. And the description in these verses we're going to look at can formulate for you a prayer list and can guide you as well as be a gauge, a set of criteria for the kind of person that you are looking for. And this is a critical time for you as a church And so it's important for you, isn't it, to understand the kind of messenger of life-changing truth that you need, that this church needs. So what does this text show us about the kind of people who deliver life-changing truth to the church? So let's talk, first of all, about these messengers of life-changing truth. And first of all, I'd like us to see how this text describes their roles, the roles that they fulfill in, in the gathering, in the church there in Crete, and the roles they fulfill in churches today. There are three terms used to describe these, the, the role of these messengers of life-changing truth, and you see one of them in verse 5, where Paul instructs Timothy to appoint elders, this term is used frequently, in fact, I think I would say most frequently in the New Testament for those in the key position of leadership in the church. And we think of an elder as someone who's, who's older, right, an aged person. And, and it kind of has that, that idea, but the, the real significance is someone who is mature, someone who has grown up. They, they are adulting. Um, they have a level of, of responsibility and of respectability from those around them. And so they can effectively lead others. They can be an example to others. Another term that we see here, and you see this one in verse 7, where it says, for a bishop. Now some of you think of a chess piece. Any chess players here? You think of a chess piece, a bishop, a little cone-shaped top, right? Uh, a bishop was, it was an office in in uh, the institutional church over the ages but don't think of a person with a a big heavy robe and a pointed hat Uh, the word just means overseer in fact in fact that would be a literal translation of this word it's made up of two parts in the original language and the first part of the word is a prefix that means over and the second part of the word is the the main part of the word which means guess what see you got it right we even might use the word supervise. Super over vis viz video visual see, right? You get it? So, so that's what this word means. It means an overseer. So it's not not some formal, you know, overly dignified office holder or efficient. That's not the idea of this word. It does imply leadership. There is an element of authority that is inherent with this idea. But it's the idea of being of someone who supervises and it relates to this leader's oversight of the church spiritually and organizationally. Now, I want to show you something that's not in this passage, but does relate to what we're talking about here that kind of ties this together. So so turn just a few pages over to the right, a few of these little New Testament books over to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a term that we don't see in, in Titus, but it is used in connection with those two terms of, of elder and overseer. And I want you to see it here in First Peter chapter 5. So now here it's not Paul speaking, it's, it's Peter. You know who Peter was, right? The fisherman became a disciple, became the apostle. So this is Peter now. And look at what he says in First Peter chapter 5 verse 1. The, and there's our first word, elders who are among you. I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. What's the first word in verse 2? Shepherd, shepherd, the flock of God which is among you, serving as, what's the next one? Overseers. Now, Peter here is talking to the leaders in the churches to whom he's writing and here he uses those two terms that we just saw in Titus, right? So he identifies them as elders and as overseers, and he's talking not to individual separate groups, but to the same group of people. And he also calls them, in verse 2, shepherds, and that is the word that means pastor. Pastor is from a Latin word that means a shepherd, shepherd. So so here these three words are used together, right? Elder and overseer and then shepherd, which means pastor. And Peter's talking to one group of people. He's calling on these leaders and and challenging them about how they live and the lives they live with their people, before their people, and their accountability and the reward that comes from the chief shepherd when he will appear and reward them. So I show you that, and we can go back to Titus now. I show you that because I want you to see how these terms are used not as exact synonyms, they don't all mean the same thing, but they refer to the same person, somebody who holds that same position. So, so back in Titus, Paul is telling Titus to enlist individuals who will be pastors, who will be shepherds, who will be overseers, who will have a level of maturity and respectability that these people can, can listen to and respect and follow. Now, there is one more term here in Titus 1 that I do want us to see, and this is not one that we necessarily call someone in this position, but we see it in verse 7. It's very important where he says, A bishop or an overseer must be blameless as a steward, a steward of God. A steward is a household manager. A steward is someone who oversees, is kind of a caretaker, and a manager of a household and manages that household in behalf of someone else who is the actual owner or the master of that household. So a steward is not the owner, but the steward is responsible for how it operates and is accountable to the owner or the master. Let me illustrate this with something kind of fun that happened to, to me uh, this last. I think it was last summer, early fall. I have a friend. And uh, my, my friend bought a new car. It was actually not a brand new car. It was a 2018. And I wrote down the description to make sure I got it right. 2018 E400 formatic Cabriolet Convertible Mercedes Benz. Dark charcoal, hard top, automatic open and close. And he said, hey, I got this car. You want to take your wife on a date? It's like, uh, made me a little nervous, but I said, that would be fun. He said, it's yours. I drove my car to his house. They handed me the keys. It's like getting inside the cockpit of a fighter jet, figuring everything out, right? All the buttons and everything and how it starts, how it stops. Afraid I'm going to push the wrong button. Maybe that's the ejection seat, right, that would send me flying. And uh, drove away, feeling very, very concerned that I take excellent care of my friend's Mercedes-Benz convertible. He was like, oh, you'll have a good time. Don't worry about it. It'll be great. And we did. My wife and I went out to eat. We drove up to Sailorville Dam, sat there at sunset, enjoyed the, the view, and, and uh, then dropped her off and drove it back and got in the drive. I was like, ooh, made it. No scratches, you know, no problems. And it was a lot of fun. But I felt very responsible for that extremely nice vehicle because it was not mine. And I guess you could say, in a sense, he entrusted it to me, and he made me, for that evening, a manager of his very nice car, and I felt responsible to return it to him in excellent condition. And that's the kind of idea that, that Paul is emphasizing here for people in leadership in a church ministry. Now, don't, don't, just, uh, don't just think in terms of people in leadership because... Peter, we won't go there now, but Peter actually in 1 Peter 4, 11, tells us that we all have gifts to use in the church, that we are to utilize as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So all of us are stewards, right? And, and imagine if somebody made you the manager of Elon Musk's household or LeBron James' household, right? Man, that might be a lot of fun, but also a whole lot of responsibility. Well, Paul says to Titus, an overseer must be blameless as a steward of whose household? God. Oh, wow. That's the ultimate, isn't it? And so there's a great sense of responsibility, but also what an amazing privilege it is. Whether it's pastors, church members, any way that we serve, we are stewards. And so so that's a term that that Paul uses to identify the role of this individual. Now, let's uh, think in terms of the qualifications. And what I'd like to do here is give some general descriptions of the qualifications of these messengers of life-changing truth. There's one general qualification. There are two regarding his home life. There are some negatives, some vices to avoid. And some positives, some virtues to have. So the general one that we see there in verse 7 is blameless, blameless. And you see it again. Uh, I'm sorry, you see it in verse 6, if a man is blameless. And then in verse 7 again, so twice, which means it's very important. This does not mean that this person is perfect. But it does mean that they're living in a way that is above reproach. One source I read used the word unimpeachable. So if lawmakers impeach a president, it's because they think or they're accusing that president of something that's blameworthy, something they've caught him in, something that he's being accused of. And this is saying that that a person in this position of leadership and a deliverer of God's truth needs to be unimpeachable. Nothing in his life. And, and again, not perfection, but as we're talking about learning and living, that there is no glaring gap between what this person knows and is teaching and how they live. Their life is generally consistent with the truth of God's word, so that they are qualified to teach others, not just what they know, but how to live. So that's the general category. Then we see two regarding this individual's home life in verse six. And again, not to go into great detail, just to give some general descriptions for now, and these are elements that that every church should be very familiar with and study and be aware of. But just to just to refer to them here now, so back in verse six, the husband of one wife. And the emphasis here is that these are men, and they are men who are exclusively devoted to their wives. One man Devoted to his one wife. If they are parents, they are to be parents who do not have wild, that is those accused of dissipation, out of control, or insubordination, so rebellious children. So so their home life is under control. They have a consistent, exclusive devotion to their wives. An individual man to his wife and is consistent in his parenting to the point of having a home that is under control. And Paul emphasizes the the reason for this in a parallel passage, 1 Timothy 3, where he says if if a man can't manage his home, how is he going to manage the household of God, right? So the home is the place where a man first exhibits his, his character and his leadership. Then in verse 7, we see five vices, to avoid, he says, not these things. So, I mean, think about Crete. And these men were called evil men and, and gluttons and liars, right? That was, the, that was the culture they came from. So if they were living that way before, there needed to be a change in their lives. So they're not living this that way now. Not characterized by, not controlled by, self-will. As he says in verse 7, not self-willed, not controlled by self, not quick-tempered, so not controlled by anger, not given to wine, so not controlled by alcohol. And by the way, this comes up here and also in chapter 2 related to the ladies in the church. Sounds like there was a problem in their culture with alcohol, wasn't there? So he's making a distinction here saying that should not be a characteristic of your life as a leader. Not characterized by conflict, not violent. Not characterized by a desire or control of money, not greedy for money. So, so, what does control these people? What should every believer be controlled by, or who? The Holy Spirit, right? And that's the idea that these, these individuals are not controlled by self, by desire for pleasure, by outside uh, um, controlling forces or substances but by the Holy Spirit. Now, should these only characterize leaders in the church? These should characterize every Christian, shouldn't they? So again, this is relevant for all of us because we should all be growing in these areas. And, and I would say if you're in the stage of life where you're, you're in your teenage years, you're in your, your young, single stage of life, those are times when these issues can begin to gain control. In you. So watch your passions, watch your appetites, watch what you look at, watch what you indulge in. Be careful of those temptations because those are the steps toward being controlled by something outside of yourself. And guard yourself against those just as a man, just as a woman, just as a believer. But, he says, verse 8. So not only, it's not just enough to avoid those vices, but it is important to have and develop these virtues now that he gives us to embrace in verses 8 and 9. And again, just a quick description, hospitable. That means your heart and your home are open to people. You have an open heart to others, and you open your home to others. A lover of what is good. So this person values truly good things. And and again, that's the emphasis of this book, right? Doing what is good. Sober-minded. Serious about life. Not flippant, not frivolous, but mature. Just probably refers to being upright in how they treat others. And holy probably refers to being consistently obedient to God. So doing right toward others as well as toward God self-controlled, again, not impulsive, not driven by desire, but able to curb appetites and passions and reactions, and again, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I'd like to, to make sure we understand this is practical for us, and, and so what are some implications of this? How does this, how does this affect how, how we think and, and us here today? Well, one thought is that that the truth must Impact the messenger before he delivers it to others. Right? It's not enough for a man to just study the scriptures and get up and give a nice expositional message and and walk off and and be done. No, the truth needs to impact that individual's life in order for him to be qualified to deliver that life changing truth to others. So again, remember these these Christians. It seems like. That that Titus didn't have a lot to work with, as they're described in later verses in this chapter. But some had heard the gospel. And some of them had grown to the level where Titus could identify these characteristics. And you know what the blessing is? And again, to make this personal, there are people, and I'm, I'm pointing, I'm not sure which direction I'm pointing here, but there are people out there, outside of this facility, on those streets, in those shops, in those homes, who can hear the gospel, who can trust in Jesus as Savior, who can begin to grow spiritually, and can one day be here, be right where you are, right? And they can grow and be transformed, and one day a few can and should eventually be Where I'm standing, delivering the truth of the message of God's word to a group of people, whether it's in this place or some other location. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I mean, it happened in Crete. It can happen here, and it should be happening here. That should be the goal of any church. To spread the gospel, share the good news, so people can grasp that truth and be transformed by it. And some of them eventually become leaders in the church. What is the Great Commission? Go and do what? Make disciples, right? Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, the things you've learned from me, Paul said to Timothy... You, Timothy, commit to faithful men, that is, people who hear the gospel and become followers of Christ, who will be able to teach others also. And Paul was here telling Titus to have that same cycle going in the church there in Crete, as should we. Another implication for this today. I do encourage young men to look over these qualities and learn about them. And pray for God to help you cultivate these in your life. And guard yourself in areas where you're tempted, in areas where you know you're vulnerable, in areas where you've already made decisions to indulge in some sinful, sensual desire and sin. And ask God's forgiveness and accept it. And look at these qualities and pray and say, God, help me to be this kind of person. And I say, young men, because one day you may have the thought. I wonder if God wants me in ministry. When I was in high school, I remember thinking I would never want to be a pastor. I don't know why that thought crossed my mind, but I remember having that thought very distinctly. And then a few years later, somebody asked me, Hey, Dean, would you, would you share a little Bible lesson for, for our group of, of your fellow seniors, senior class in our school? I'd never done anything like that before. And I said, Well, okay. And I, I, I read it, and I came up with some notes, and I did the best I could to share those with that little group. And that kind of lit a fire, maybe I'd call it a spark, in my heart. And a desire began to grow. And that's what Paul means when he says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, if a man desires to be an overseer, he desires a good thing. But let that man be blameless. So we use the word aspire, A-S-P-I-R-E, aspire. And one day, some of you guys may feel that, that desire and that interest, or somebody may say to you, Hey, have you thought about ministry? Well, It's good to have these qualities in place in your life regardless, isn't it? But if God begins to work in your life and you have that interest, it's good to already be on that path of growing and developing and guarding these qualities so that when that desire comes, you are already becoming the kind of man God will use. And he'll help you know. And others will make it clear to you as to whether you should pursue ministry as a vocation or not. That may or may not happen. And then one more area of, of relevance for us is that, that, again, as a church, and again, I think this goes without saying, but it's important to, to uh, speak it into the, into the minutes, right, of the church, so to, so to speak. Pray for and only pursue men who have these qualities in place with the position of pastor. As a church, develop an understanding of these qualities and make them the bare minimum criteria for anyone you consider. And then pray for that kind of person. And as God blesses you with a pastor or pastors, elders, overseers in your gathering, in this flock, in your assembly, in this church, then then pray for and encourage those individuals to be on guard in those areas, because Satan does target them and help them be accountable and encourage them to grow and maintain and develop these areas as well. Now, the, the last qualification of these messengers is in verse 9, but we are actually going to look at it separately from the others because of its importance. It is critical to have qualified messengers to deliver the life-changing truth. But these messengers also need to have a high level of commitment to the message that they deliver. So let's look together at verse 9, which shows us the message of life-changing truth. It says, holding fast, so still describing These individuals holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. This shows us a few things. First of all, it shows us the source of the message, which is the faithful word. And there's some beautiful descriptions in the Bible of of the things that we enjoy as believers and of who God is and what he's like. And that right there is a good one. The faithful word. and, And you could also give this the meaning of the trustworthy word. The trustworthy word. So what he's talking about here is the fact that God has given a reliable and trustworthy source of a message to those who deliver those life-changing truths. And that is the trustworthy word. Now now look up in verse three, where Paul's talking about his own ministry, and he says that, that God made promises in verse two about this eternal life, and then in verse three, but has in due time, manifested his word. Through preaching. That's another favorite. In fact, I have a prayer list I use every time I preach. And I, I, I block out time and I get up early enough. And I spend time with that prayer list about that time of preaching. And this is one of the things I pray for. God, manifest your word through preaching. God makes his word known through the message and the messengers who deliver those messages. And and that's what Paul is saying there about his own ministry. Now, he's talking specifically about the gospel, probably the good news. But the word includes more than that. The word is the entirety of the written scriptures. So, So preaching, as Paul identifies it, which is publicly speaking and explaining and applying scripture, preaching is the vehicle by which God makes his word known. And oh, what a blessing it is for the messenger who knows that he can trust the word and and he knows that those who hear it can trust it as well. What a blessing that is for those who hear the message, right? This is the word of God. I can trust it. It is trustworthy. And so the speaker can deliver it with confidence and it can be received with confidence, but it also gives us a sense of urgency. This is important. We need this. This is God's word and should be received with that same spirit. Notice again the chain of influence. And and look back now in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. The Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ. Jesus came, taught his disciples. They taught others. Paul was face to face with Jesus himself and was converted. And Paul began teaching new leaders including Titus. And now Titus is teaching these new elders in Crete. And Paul says, just like they're being taught, now they need to go and deliver the truth to others. A few implications that I draw from this are, first of all, a messenger can't make up his own message, can he? Uh, The elders in Crete were to keep going back to what they had learned this is, this is good for all of us in, in church life because some of you are teachers. Maybe you teach a class or you help with a Bible study. I would say even, even teaching your own children. Peter said again in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, if anyone speaks, referring to those who claim to teach truth or whether it's through preaching or teaching or even counseling or conversing, if anyone speaks, let him speak as, and he uses an unusual word there, the oracles of God. And the word oracles means divine utterances. And what he's saying is, hey, if you speak and you claim to speak for God, you're teaching, you're preaching, you're, you're counseling, you're conversing, you're giving advice, make sure that what you say corresponds clearly and directly to what God has actually said. Very important for all of us. So the messenger can't make up his own message. Another implication is that the messengers must resist pressure to let go of the true trustworthy word. Notice he says holding tightly. Clinging we might say. Having not only, not only a, an attachment to it but a heart devotion to it. I'm loyal to the word and I love the word. The messenger must resist pressure to let go of the true trustworthy word. And it is tempting, I can tell you from, from being a pastor, it is tempting to look for something novel, something glitzy, saying something in a way that just kind of grabs people's attention. That's always a temptation for a speaker. Nothing wrong with being pithy or or saying something to, to get people to listen. but. But if we're depending on that, relying on that, we're not relying on the the true and trustworthy word. It's tempting to look for something that's not so negative, that's more accommodating, that sounds more sophisticated. And this is a very real intense pressure in our day. And you've heard news, you know that there are things going on in other countries and in our country. Attempts to put limits on and restrictions on what we say that the word of God teaches. It's tempting to give in to that and to accommodate. But this is where the church and any who deliver the word must resist that pressure. Another implication is that the messenger and the people who hear it know that the message is reliable as long as it comes from the trustworthy word. And that requires a degree of labor, doesn't it? In fact, Paul talks about elders who labor in the word. So those who teach, those who speak, again, whether it's in front of the whole church or in classes, boy, this this book is worthy of our effort, our time in studying and investigating and reading and and discussing to make sure we're understanding it correctly. Not only is it worthy of it, it demands it. Because we want to reflect what God's word says accurately and clearly, clearly. And not add to it or take away from it. So, the source of the message of life changing truth is the faithful word. And then we see the content of the message as well here in verse 9 that he may be able by sound doctrine, by sound doctrine, doctrine just means teaching. It is it's talking about the truths that we find in God's word, about God himself about the creation of the world, how it all began, about who we are as as mankind, about the reality of sin, what it does, its effects, about the purpose that God has and, and the plan that He devised for providing redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, the teachings of God's Word about the Bible itself, God's revelation of himself to us about the reality of eternity and heaven and hell and angels, Satan, demons, and the end times. That that vista that he puts out there in front of us about how everything will be consummated in God's design and in his time. These all make up the content of the message We deliver. But look look at how Paul describes it. It needs to be healthy. That's what the word sound means. Healthy doctrine. That means it's strong. It's robust. it It is not corrupt. How could teaching be unhealthy? Emphasizing one part, but neglecting another essential part? Adjusting it to fit how we think, rather than adjusting how we think, to fit the truth, altering it, shading it, simplifying it to fit popular views or the pressures of the world around us, inserting our own opinions and representing them as God's truth, twisting the ideas to fit an agenda. Those are some examples of unhealthy doctrine. Healthy means it's accurate. It is no less and no more than Scripture says or allows. And it is robust. It is not oversimplified. And, and we fit our beliefs to the doctrine, not the other way around. Now, now, keep our theme in mind of closing the gap between learning and living. And this is very important when thinking about doctrine. That word is a little bit of a sleeper for some people, right? Even the word like doctrine. Okay, wake me back up when you're done. I understand. But here's the thing. What, what Paul is emphasizing is that doctrine is not an end in itself. It should transform our lives. And that leads to another element of the message that he identifies here. He says, he says, we're not just looking for people who can stand up and spout theology. No, they hold fast the faithful word as they've been taught, that they may be able by this sound doctrine to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So what we see here is the impact of the message. When preaching, we have a term for this. You know what it's called? Application. Or there's a technical term that we learn in seminary, stepping on your toes. You've heard that term, right? It's application. It's saying, okay, here's the truth now, folks. Here's how we need to live. This is how it should impact our lives. So let's talk about the impact of the message. The word exhort means to call to action. It can have the idea of encouraging, saying, hey, it's going to be okay, and hey, you can do this. That idea is included, but it's more than that. It's saying, hey, let's go. It's time to act on what you have heard. So the messenger's job is not just to teach the truth, but also to tell you how to obey that truth and to urge you to do it. It includes explaining what the text means because you need to understand what it says, but then challenging wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, and attitudes, and behaviors, and calling you to believe what the text says and align your life to it. And then there are some who, who contradict. In other words, they oppose, and he identifies them here at the end of verse 9. And, and he says you also need to be able to, to convict them. The idea is to, to rebut those wrong ideas, to challenge that wrong thinking. And, and there were false doctrines being spread by other messengers. He identifies them again in verses 10 and 11 in this passage. So he's saying, hey, Titus, it shouldn't just be you who is equipped to stand up and counter those wrong ideas. But you should make sure that those other messengers of God's word can do that as well. To refute those ideas and to warn people about them and show them the truth so they won't be led astray. But you know what's interesting here is ultimately the hope is that those who believe and promote those wrong ideas will actually turn And embrace the truth. Look at what he says down in verse 13. This testimony is true. Speaking of the the description of those those Cretans. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So not only stave off the influence of the false teaching, but but actually there's a hope that those who have embraced it, even, even those who are spreading it, Can be reached with the gospel and themselves become believers in the truth. That is the potential impact that the message has. As a pastor, I have observed different ways that people view preaching. And many have this right balance of learning the truth so they can live it out. But there are some who just love to learn and who seek out gifted teachers, and have their favorites, and take lots of notes, and read many books, and attend conferences, but aren't as interested in applying the truth that they learn. And I have encountered some of them who are very angry people when you push the wrong button, are very reactive, very prideful, very controlling in others and may even have major conflicts and issues, for example, in their home, in their marriage, and how they treat their children. And and if you try to talk to that person about that issue, it's like stepping on a landmine. That person explodes. Well who are you and don't you know? And I've done this. Wow. There's a disconnect, isn't there? There's a gap between the learning and the living. They are what James describes as hearers, but not doers of the word. I've encountered a few who are at the other extreme. As I began pastoring in in the second church where I was the lead pastor and began preaching, I had a different style from the pastor who preceded me. God had used him to plant the church and build the church, and he was kind of a big dynamic personality and kind of a strong preacher and, you know, tell you how it is, and I'm more of a teacher and, and one lady walked up to me after a service one day, and I remember one of them, and she said, you're different, <laughs> and uh, that was one. But another one said, preacher, just tell us what to do. you know. And I get that, right? People want the practical element. But I, but I think that there was a gap there between the living and the learning in the sense that there is also a need to understand the truths. Because both are essential, aren't they? Life must be anchored to truth. We need to know that what we're being told comes from the truth of the Word of God. But truth must also impact our lives. It's not enough to have the knowledge in our heads. It must affect the choices we make day by day. And some of us are teachers. But all of us should be learners. And when we are listening to anyone teach the Word, we should be ready to hear... And not only what they're telling us, but but how to apply it and the implications it has for our lives and how we should change. Now, there's something very important to keep in mind for all of us, those who deliver these truths as well as those who hear them. Learning and living is about more than just figuring out how to act like a Christian and conform our behavior. It is the truth of who God is and what Jesus has done for us that enables us to close that gap. And let me refresh our minds by looking at chapter 2, verse 11 again and following. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that... Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So there's the change. There's the, the learning and the living. But now look at, look at where, where Paul focuses and wants Titus to focus his attention. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. His own special people, zealous for good works. So what Jesus Christ did by coming and giving his life and being raised from the dead provides cleansing for our sins and the power to change as the power of his resurrection is applied to our lives. So it's by his death we are cleansed. It is by his resurrection we have the power to change. And those who deliver the message and those who receive it need to rely wholly on him. We rely on Him. And again, it's not just about changing behavior, but being changed from within by the work of Christ. With Christ's forgiveness and His enabling power, your life can be changed by truth. The passage that we have looked at shows us the importance of having the right messengers and the right message in a church. It was very important that this church in Crete would be characterized by preaching and teaching of the word that truly changed lives. And I'll put the question to you this morning. Do you think that is important for you, for this church? Will you pray that the ministry of the word, not necessarily the person, but but the ministry of the word in this church, would be held in high esteem? And will you view times in the Word as opportunities to not only learn something or review what you already know, but to experience the transformation of heart and mind and life that God intends for you? Father, we thank you for the life-changing power of the Word of God. May it have its full impact in us today, and I pray that we would find and share and entrust this word to others who will be able to teach others, who will be able to teach others. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.